welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work and today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WIR as DJ Lilas, and I'm very lucky to be here with Steve Taylor to discuss Charlton Heston and Soylent Green. What is the secret of Soylent Green? Thanks for coming, Steve. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really glad we made it. Right. Glad we, so I'm gonna I'm gonna give a little bit of an intro to you, and then we'll talk about the film. For those who don't know, Steve Taylor, he's the chairman of the VPA, which is the Virginia Production Alliance. What is the VPA? How would you describe it? Uh, the VPA is probably the state's uh, largest uh, film advocacy group. Um, we organize filmmakers and production companies to both network and advocate for film, film incentives and things like that before the state government. Getting Lincoln to come, etc. Yes, work with the conjunction with the uh, film office to encourage uh, major production in the state. And um, we also endeavor to bring other people into the industry, provide training platforms, mm-hmm. things like that. And. Uh, Hopefully with some of our meetings and events, uh, some networking opportunities for those who are interested and currently involved in the industry. I really appreciate them. So you just had a a really successful panel on voice acting at WCVE, um, which is in Midlothian at their station, and that's just a taste. So um, coming up, I know next week you're having your annual holiday party. However, we're recording this on December 16th, and it won't be aired until January, so plugging that won't mean more people will show up. <laughs> well, maybe they can join us for our Filmmaker Showcase in January. When is that? Uh, we're looking around the, I think, 17th. Okay. Well, hopefully this will air before then, but if not, just find the VPA on Facebook and, and connect with them. What's the right. best way to connect with the VPA? You can try on Facebook or check us out at uh, virginiaproductionalliance.org. Uh, also in January, we'll have our state of the industry program at the Ooh. end of the month at WCVE. Cool. So come on out to that also. Um, so you were also on uh, the crew for Flash Frame, who won RVA's forty-dollar film horror fest very recently with the short titled Amelia. You're an adjunct professor of poli sci at VCU. You just administered your final. Uh, <laughs> it's on sit on the course for city politics, which is extremely relevant to this movie we'll be talking about. And um, you're a policy analyst for the Richmond City Council. You're also on the board for the Bird Theater Foundation. So if you say I'm busy, I would throw that right back at you, Steve. (laughs) (laughs) So let me ask you, why did you, when I asked you about your favorite sci-fi film, you did say, you know, I've never been a big sci-fi fan, but the word Soylent Green came up. Why did why did that come to mind for you? I think a big part of it was the fact that in the class I was currently teaching uh, at VCU uh, was called City Politics. And just around that time, we had got into discussion with uh, the class about how you know the 50s and early 60s seemed to be the heyday of a great American city. Mm-hmm. And as we were going into the late 60s and early 70s, um, you had the sort of decline of the great American city. And, it, and I mentioned to some of the students, well, the class, that it became reflected in film. Mm-hmm. And mention some of the films like uh, the Dirty Harry series, mm-hmm. uh, the Death Wish series starring Charles Bronson, and also mention sci-fi, mm-hmm. sort of uh, the Solvent Green and Omega Man, and uh, all of whom were surprised to learn that Omega Man was a previous version of the I Am Legend film that they're more familiar with starring Will Smith. I actually did not know that, and I've read the book the I Am, that was I Am Legend was based on the novella. So, yes. wow, I didn't know that, that Omega Man was based on it. But, yes, yeah, so because it relates to the idea of the decline of the city. 
New York City, in the year 2022. Nothing runs anymore. Nothing works. But the people are the same. And the people will do anything to get what they need. This is the police. What they need most is Soylent Green. For those of you who haven't seen the film, here's a quick review. Soylent Green is a landmark dystopian film that was directed by Richard Fleischer, who is known for other fantastical films like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but also for being the son of animator Max Fleischer, who's a legendary, <laughs> um, known, known for producing some of the Popeye and Betty Boop films. Uh, Soylent Green was released by MGM in 1972, written by Stanley Greenberg and adapted from the 1966 novel Make Room, Make Room by Harry Harrison. Soylent Green follows grizzled detective Thorne, played, of course, by Charlton Heston, known to many as Moses in the Ten Commandments, but of course no complete stranger to sci-fi because four years before that he was in uh, Planet of the Apes. Yes. Um, so we follow Thorne through an overcrowded, overpolluted, terrifying vision of the future, which is New York City in 2022. Two years away, folks. Two years away. 40 million people are stuffed into this rotting uh, carcass of a city, half of them are out of work, and hardly anyone is literate. Fresh food is a rare treat only for the rich. The rest of humanity fights for scraps on, quote, market day, eating processed squares of nutrients called Soylent. Following the murder of a CEO who's connected with the Soylent Corporation, Thorne uncovers a terrible trail that leads to a paradigm-shifting secret. With the help of his book, Saul, played by Eddie Robinson, Thorne reveals one of the greatest plot twists in cinema history, now a well-known phrase, Soylent Green is people. <laughs> I love the way he delivers that line. Yeah, he has so many in his career. I think so. everyone has learned to imitate some Charlton Heston line from one of his films, either The Ten Commandments or Ben-Hur. He's a legend. And I have to say, so I just want to say, Steve, thank you for picking this film because I had never seen it. And I think it unfortunately has maybe fallen through the cracks in that because the twist is so well known, people might overlook the film itself, right? Yeah, so well known. It's spoofed everywhere. The Simpsons. Yeah, it's, uh, it even has a real product yes. called Soylent. Have you, do you know about this? Yes, I've heard about this. It's, and the guy said he picked it because he knew it would be, what's the word, um, outrageous. <laughs> so it's spoofed everywhere, but I didn't realize quite how great this film really was and how much influence it's had. I can see the influence on this movie and other films like Children of Men. Have you seen that? Um, it's another no, film about no. you know post post apocalypse. It's got um, uh, Clive Owen in it, and there's a lot of scenes. I mean, the choreography of the scenes is amazing. But I want to start with the beginning of the film, which is the music montage intro. So it starts with what sounds like a hymn, almost. I thought so. Right? I thought I recognized it as a kid growing up in church. Yeah. And and so, I mean, there's a lot. We can talk about the prevalence of um, classical music, but it, it transitions into more modern-sounding jaunty sax as we get into, like you were saying, the 60s, the heyday of the American city, and then uses that as a device to set exposition about the setting that we're in, right? Yes. yes. You, you're following the history that you can that you agree with and know, and then we see a different future take place, the one that we're terrified of, which is overpopulation, sadness, death, war, famine, the things that we think we've conquered in modern era, but in this film we haven't, right? That they've, that they've come back. So uh, I don't know. The thing that I wrote down after wat- watching this was 
this kind of montage intro is a hundred times better than any of the just random uh, paragraphs of exposition that you tend to see in sci-fi films. Most sci-fi films, it's two or three paragraphs of, okay, we're in the future. <laughs> this does it so much better. I think so. I think so. It, it reminded me of a lot of these older sort of 70s television shows, too, that have mm-hmm. these sort of montaged photos. Yeah, it almost lures you in with a sense of of security that you're watching like a fun intro to a TV. Yeah, it has a TV show. But what, I'm, what I like is that it doesn't use any words to do exposition. And the, the exposition in this film is so well done. You know, like there's a moment where Thorne is talking to his boss where he, he says, how was the furniture? And then he imitates you know, her breast. And I don't understand what that means until much later, right? The, these yes. things are planted in your mind. Um, so I love that intro from the very beginning. I was hooked. But what I want to start off with is talking about the importance of social commentary in art. So I, in my research, I found that it was really Charlton Heston who pushed the creation of this film because it was something overpopulation is an obsession of his. And I, I just wanted to talk to you about, you know, what do you think is... Uh, the role of art in social change does it have to be driving commentary do you think it it actually works you know does Soylent Green is it what is it effective well I think I think Soylent Green was reflective Mm. of concerns uh, rather than effective Mm. on um, actual say public policy Um, I do think it at the time you know this mid-60s Along with all of the great concerns about getting to outer space, getting to the moon, there was this concern that at a very basic level, um, there was a population explosion that we thought, many people in the intellectual community thought, we couldn't keep up with. And that the world would lead to eventual starvation or overconsumption. And that would go into wars uh, over food, basic resources. So it... had a, um, almost possessed the intellectual community. And I think Heston and others in the arts community reflected this concern. And it's here in this movie. Mm-hmm. So some, uh, the show is mostly about science fiction and I think a lot of times science fiction, whether it intends to or not, uh, when we're envisioning something that is of the future, we are making social commentary. But this is a film that Heston himself said was the only film that he ever was in that had social commentary. So it was reflective, but we do know that it has had an impact as a piece of art. I guess the question is, when does it make sense to be overt, right? What is, if if your goal is to make a movie that's going to drive people to think differently, Mm -hmm. right? Do you think, what do you think was the intended goal of making this movie? I I do think there was clearly some um, concerns about overpopulation. And that, I think in the larger public policy and from Institutions like the UN. Some will say some of the one-child policies in places like China. Mm-hmm. Um, the deep concerns that I can still remember as a kid. People talking about starvation in India. Uh, eat your food. Someone starving in India. Oh yeah. That's sort of. And that was a, a major, major concern at that time. That these. Uh, uh, I think India at the time maybe had 400 million people, and um, I think at around this time, the book. Uh, population bomb came out by um, the Ehrlichs, the uh, husband and wife um, authors of that book. Mm-hmm. He taught at Stanford, and that probably was the dominant or one of the dominant environmental concerns at the time that the world was overpopulating and wouldn't be able to feed itself. And that, of course, Ehrlich was everywhere, 
in public policy, mm-hmm. uh, speaking on probably every campus. The book was read popularly mm-hmm. uh, on television, every talk show. It was everywhere. And um, interestingly, though, at the same time, we're reaching the be- very beginnings, the height of the um, Green Revolution mm-hmm. that's in response to this. Mm-hmm. And um, But it was, a, it was a major concern at the time. Yeah. I mean, I think the role of pieces of, of art like this is, say, what Black Mirror is doing today, right? That we need to illustrate the potential for things to be misused using characters and stories so you can understand how this would affect them. So it's one thing to say, hey, we think that overpopulation is going to have a uh, you know, effect on, on human life. It's another thing to see two people having what they would say a gourmet meal with two pieces of lettuce yeah. and each getting to gingerly eat slices of apple, right? As yeah. if it's a completely treasured. Um, so in the work that you've participated in, what would you say is one that stands out of, uh, in terms of film in relation to social in commentary? Have you ever worked on a piece where you guys were trying to make a, a, a statement? Um. Well, most of the things that I've been involved with are either around contest, commercials, or at least the artist vision. Um, one short I was involved with, um, uh, a local artist uh, wrote a pl- uh, short film called Kill Jar, mm. where you had some had interesting concerns about the value of human life. And I think this has that mm-hmm. very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, and the sacredness of human life, mm-hmm. the human, the human being, um, the remains of human. Yeah, because he even says at the end. Again, there's going to be spoilers throughout this. If you're listening to this, this is WIRLP ninety-seven point three FM. Thanks for tuning in. This is the show. They came from outer space. I'm Cameron Kitt here with Steve Taylor. We're talking about Soylent Green, and we will be spoiling this movie throughout. But that shouldn't keep you from watching it. No. It's well worth it. At the end, when he's having his you know, very famous monologue breakdown. He says they're going to be using us for, you know, they're going to be breeding us like cattle, right? The idea is that <laughs> capitalism is going to be reducing us into farm animals, yeah. right? So it does, I think it does a good job. Um, what would you say is, you mentioned that, you know, there's there's literature that drives the work in policy because you work in film, but you also work in policy, so you get to see this relationship. Um, have you... Would you say that it's important to have things like this to relate back to when you when you're when policy is being made? Well, I, I certainly think um, to understand what might be the concerns of different constituent groups or members of the public, because um, I do think art reflects their concerns, and mm-hmm. I think artists uh, and and sometimes it, it alerts most people, especially film and television. And uh, I think it was Gene Siskel, a movie critic, who said. Uh, Movies were America's most uh, democratic art form, mm. uh, which is funny in one way in that I think it was um, Orson Welles who said it was the only art form that required investors. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, But at the same time, I think it's such a powerful medium that everyone pays attention to it and pays attention to it in a, in a, in a way that I think um, maybe the intelligentsia or the critical class doesn't fully accept in that or appreciate in that you can get great discussions about a movie from almost anyone, mm-hmm. child, from your cab driver, uh, from your passing discussion with mm-hmm. a, a seat mate on a bus. Mm-hmm. And it's because it is such a democratic art form that you get a sense of what people are thinking. And I think that in that sense, uh, film and television 
have a re- can have a really powerful impact on public policy and can continue to have an impact because every as years pass our perceptions and the quote different new waves of film theory can lend films to have different impacts right things can grow and change i would say for me watching this 42 years after it came out or what was it 47 oh gosh i just 46 it be, yeah. it's 46 years since this film came out almost 47 because it'll be 2019 very soon the thing that stands out to me that this film got right is the scarcity of food yeah the idea of food deserts the idea of of The future of food as overprocessed and losing our connection to nature and humanity, right? The representation of eating these little crackers as (laughs) our loss of humanity. And that is happening and has not stopped happening. Even in my own diet, I eat an incredible amount of processed food and don't have a you know, real relationship. But the difference is I went to the grocery store recently and really was thinking about it, yeah. right, that we still technically have access. So what, what are your thoughts on, on food and in this film and relationship? Uh, the food desert issues come up a lot at, at City Hall um, in that um, there's this great concern about whether or not people have these neighborhood access to uh, a good product at a, at a reasonable price. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, most people think of that as sort of an urban problem. But believe it or not, as America gets away from backyard gardening and canning and these type of things that you, our grandparents did and hunting mm-hmm. and fishing, mm-hmm. um, with fewer and fewer hunting and fishing licenses being issued in many places, um, people, it's almost as if people don't know what... Um, Real food is until, uh, well, where would they see it? Yeah. We, uh, we eat more and more at restaurants, more prepared food. So it co- literally comes to you in its final form uh, before consumption. Um, yeah, there's a Richmond community garden that I went to volunteer at recently um, that is all the way over past um, Church Hill. And they have programs for kids to come in after middle school. And the, the, one of the standout memory stories that they told is there was a little girl who they were, they were picking strawberries and they handed it to her and she goes, no, I don't, I don't want that. That's from the dirt. I want the one from the store. She didn't <laughs> know that strawberries came from dirt. Exactly. You've only ever seen them finished in the store. And the same goes for everything. Our relationship with meat is we never see these animals. We don't know what it's like. We just receive them as finished pieces of meat or you don't see the journey that brings them to you. So we're very disconnected, yeah. right? We don't know what's in our food. We don't care, really. Then there's a great change also in the variety of what people have eaten. I remember mm-hmm. when I was a, as a political science student reading about um, a European visiting colonial America, and he journaled about his um, uh, travels through the colonies. And he one of the things he commented on was the variety of foods the early settlers had. He said you could go to among the simplest of people's homes and have say fish, deer, and squirrel. Mm-hmm. Several different types of fish, meat, or, or a river, uh, or, or say something from the bay. Mm-hmm. Um, and peanuts and corn and <laughs> whatever else you've saved. And of course now, I think a lot of that's lost. Uh, you know, I couldn't you imagine. I mean, think of something that would have been common food, like rabbit or squirrel. And, now people would think, I can't believe you're eating that. Well, I mean, they, that variety level has been lost, but a different globalized level of variety is available. For instance, um, my expectation to have avocados, bananas, yes. and last night I was eating a pomegranate thinking, 
how interesting to be in Virginia in the middle of December eating pomegranate and not questioning where that, you know, that I, I would expect fresh fruit no matter where we go. So we live in a society where everything is available to you yeah. without really thinking about where they all come from. And the idea is that the fact that they're being made from people has a lot of implications that we, uh, that like realizing that, right, that we're being fed ourselves. A lot of, I mean, for factory uh, farming, we feed a lot of cows um, and and chickens and pigs uh, dried up bones and pieces from the other dead cows. That's how we that's how we do factory farming now. So the idea is the terror of being turned into that. And I think on the cusp of a future where we have AI that could easily turn us into those things, it's it's worth being scared about. Um, I guess my question for you is: Would you try it? If I had some right here, would you try Soylent Green? No, I, I don't think you I wouldn't. Could. I totally would. Yeah. I gotta know what it tastes like. Well, I guess my feeling is, I guess there's a there's a powerful moral component yeah. in this film um, about you know although you know the hero has to shoot people, he has to fight, uh, he mm -hmm. kills, but there is I guess for every person there is a limit. And I think for most of civilization, cannibalism is that. It's limit. the ultimate taboo, yeah. Yeah. right? So, so turning everyone into unwitting cannibals is kind of the the crux of it. But it does relate today because what you just talked about with food deserts in a policy sense, you know, there are still a lot of places in Richmond where people don't have access to all these grocery stores. We keep having grocery stores open up, but it's only in the surrounding counties. And when it comes to South Side and North Side, there's still only you know corner markets. So, what will it take? for that to change. Well, you know, surprisingly, um, I think to most people, this issue uh, arises in rural areas too, where people have to drive great distance to oh, get to. Because they aren't growing their own food. Right, they're not growing That's anymore. an overlooked aspect yeah. of this. Well, it's it's one of the, I think, nationally, the great public policy problems, say, for the intellectual elites, the intelligentsia, the professoriate, is that the inner rural America is often ignored, whether it's these drug crises, mm -hmm. uh, unemployment, shuttered factories, declining farms, and including this food desert issue um, where you know you might have someone, the best store is your closest Walmart, but your closest Walmart is, is 10 miles 30. or 30 miles. And be, think about some of the interior parts of the country, say in, in Alabama or Western Virginia, where you might have to drive several minutes, up to an hour to get to. 45 minutes to get to a store. And it's a lot more complex of an issue to solve because without people being centralized, you have to focus more on education, yeah. right? If we can't bring more stores to you, we have to educate you on the importance of growing your own healthy food. Yeah. And that's uh, much harder than building a couple more Aldi's, yeah. I would think. Absolutely. Um, so that's really fascinating. So I want to talk also about, you know, going back to overpopulation and the way it's represented in the film. One of the more memorable moments are the multiple times where we see Charlton Heston going up and down staircases just covered with bodies, right? It's almost like, to me, you don't, the very first time you see him climbing the stairs, he's coming down or he's going up, yes. but we don't see what's at the top. The second time we see it, we see the person holding an AK-47 at the yes. top. Yeah. He crosses over and then he goes into his very shabby apartment, almost like it's a treehouse on top of a you know, ladder of human bodies. Yes. So you're climbing over people literally to get to just a place of normal existence and he has a job, whereas 50% of them don't. But that, to me, was very uh, memorable, right? The idea of physically showing people overcrowded and laying together in um, piles was 
is something you only think or see in in wartime, right? Well, they did a great job, I think, on these oh, these crowd scenes in mm-hmm. this movie. Oh, my it's gosh. A, it's rather amazing. I remember reading something about the filming of the of the of uh, of the movie, and uh, they talk about having something like five hundred extras. Yeah, and it seems like way more than five hundred people on in streets, or way more than say there's fifty people on this stairwell. It seems like it's covered in human beings. Our supply of soylent green has been exhausted. idea of the mark the the moving camera that reveals so much right as we're tracking there's one scene where we lose someone in the crowd and we pick up and follow a woman but the idea of overpopulation representing a loss of humanity because human life no longer means as much when we're reduced to pure numbers right people are fighting over food on market day which is being released by soylent my i have a question for you which is that every day they cut they cut the supply and then and then um I guess the, the crowd rages and riots. So do you think that was purposeful to keep people rioting by the Soylent Corporation? Or do you think that was just to represent that they have such a small amount of food available? You wonder in that, um, I think, ultimately in the reveal of how you're getting to Soylent Green, mm-hmm. um, the, um, there's that committee that discovers that the, the plankton in the oceans are dying. And, and this is another thing about the movie that's fascinating. Uh, and it's lost because of, I think, the shock of finding out you're eating people. Yep. Is that um, the greenhouse gases are killing the ocean plankton, which is what we th- were the hoping mm-hmm. that the soil green was made up. Mm-hmm. So um, there seems to be a sh- actual shortage of some sort, but um, the chaos seems to benefit this large, uh, this l- large soil and corporation. Yeah, life is pain and suffering, and they they are very encouraging of you going home, quote unquote, which is a great sequence that really drives the film forward quickly. Another thing is so amazing is, you know, most, almost everybody who will watch this who have never seen it know the ending, but the ending is not, you know, the twist is not truly revealed until the very last line. The question is how, how quickly would you get it? So when you saw it for the first time, how soon did you get it? The, I guess, wow, it might be near the very end when, 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 um, the first hint to me that, hey, wait a minute, is when Saul surrenders himself. Yeah. He, you see, oh, gosh, it's so good. <laughs> it's so well done. I love the idea that um, the society is post-literate or not literate, so that to me the representation of this dystopian future is a regression backwards to the time, the dark ages, to, the, to serfdom, where most people are illiterate, have very little power, have essentially low quality of life, right? You don't have expectations of life. However, the, the tract that was back, that was available to people in the dark ages was that your life had meaning after you died, yes. right? But when your body is going to be pulverized into a cracker, what's the meaning that your life has, right? The idea is that when life has meaning, we treat our bodies with respect and we bury them or we embalm them. However, when bodies are not treated with respect, it means that your soul has no meaning either, right? So that's the ultimate terror is that we're reduced to a society that's illiterate and the women are furniture, which, ooh, (laughs) I'm itching to get to that. But, you know, the surrendering and there's this beautiful ceremony about it, right? But it's all a trap because you're food. Right. So what what stands out to you about that going home scene with Saul? Mm-hmm. Um, for me, uh, interestingly, there is a tremendous amount of commentary about women. in it. Um, but when 
Heston appears hoping to stop him and he catches him on his on, on the bed at his last moments. Mm-hmm. And when Saul says, I love you, Thorne. Oh, I took notes on that. <laughs> and then Thorne says, I love you, Saul. I love you, Thorne. I love you, Saul. And I, I started thinking, is there any movie I could immediately think of where, you know, and where men exchange those few words that are at the absolute essence of the meaning of human life. To have, in even the most horrific of circumstances, someone to love. Yes. And to know, even if you're headed home, that someone will miss you. Um, and to lead a very tough life and to have the feelings that um, there were people who are gone who meant something to you. Yes. And um, Heston, who's known for these sort of uh, bigger-than-life characters, uh, you have um, dying there, uh, uh, Edward G. Robinson, who was you know, the, the classic 30s gangster, um, all macho men, and these just few words and for in male life, I think very often saying I love you to your friends and brothers and cousins who are men is demonstration. It's mm-hmm. I'm there when something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I demonstrate by being there. Mm. It's very rare in life that men say I love you. With earnestness and deep sincerity. Yeah. It's yeah. We're well. Masculinity. We we hear the phrase toxic masculinity a lot because um, we're just now recognizing as a society that when you repress um, male-bodied children's ability to express their feelings, that they tend to have uh, negative repercussions on them as adults. So the idea that this film, I mean, yes, like you said, Charlton Heston to me is the symbol of this ubermensch, right? He's larger than life, but he's you know. the first thing on his Wikipedia is chiseled features, right? <laughs> he is this like, he's the ideal masculine manly man, but he and Saul have this relationship in the film that is the ten- most tender and some of the best chemistry, yeah. right? His re- I want to get more into it, but his relationship with women is extremely um, formal, yeah. right? The, even the sexual relationships are very um, transactional and businesslike, mm-hmm. but this moment, you know, when the tears are in their eyes, like what a beautiful representation of masculinity that you can still be strong and show affection for someone. Yeah. I think I read somewhere that Heston, in his autobiographical commentary, talked about, in a sense, maybe knowing but not fully knowing that this may be the great Edward G. Robertson's last film mm-hmm. and that um, he was having some health issues. And I'm not knowing that it was his final scene. His final scene was his own wow. death. Wow, how powerful. And... Um, and I think, you know, when you see Edward G. Robinson, the only film where you see, I can remember him as a weaker person or weakness is Key Largo. Never seen it. I think that's the one with the famous hurricane. Uh, but uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful movie. Just to give you a little context on this sequence, um, going home means that Saul walks to a facility with mostly elderly people. He's treated with kindness. This is the first time we see people treating each other with kindness, right? Absolutely. People are wearing white robes once he comes into this room. He's put on this bed that has a white uh, covering around it, and the room turns his favorite color, which is orange. And as he's, you know, he's been, he drank the wine, this, like he's ceremonially being um, 
slaughtered for almost the way that we would uh, on the altar. And then inside the room is this panorama that plays essentially Planet Earth 2 or Planet Earth. It's just visuals of, of birds and bees, animals, flowers, and he starts to cry. And yeah. Charlton Heston starts to cry, and you realize through the exchange that Charlton Heston has never seen animals, birds, or any kind of living creature before. How powerful that is. <laughs> you know, I think in that idea, part of being human is to know that there are other animals or other yes. beings that you are different from, but are exist in, the, in, the, in life Connected with. to. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, in an urban environment, say like this, it could be going to the park and feeding the ducks, the squirrels, mm-hmm. or the geese so at mm-hmm. Bird Park or something like that. But to know that there are other things that um, a part of life that have meaning and to be um, disconnected from that is, it's, it, in a way, you lose a part of your humanity. They say that um, that's one of the first things that any returning astronaut does coming back down from the ISS is they put their hands into dirt and they, they listen to bird song and they, you don't realize how important it is to have those things in your life until they're gone. And that's something that it's important to recognize as we move further and further away from nature, right? Yeah. We're, we're moving clearly towards post-nature life as a society, mm. aren't we? Wow. Wow, post-nature life. Isn't that where we are you're, you're, headed? You're right. There's an, it's, it's very clearly no longer an actual priority to us. So on that jaunty note, you're listening to They Came From Outer Space. This is my seventh episode. Uh, this is a sci-fi movie review and discussion show here on WIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond. I'm Cameron Kitt, joined by Steve Taylor, who is chairman of the VPA. We're talking about Charlton Heston and Soylent Green. How do we come to this? And he chose to die rather than reveal the secret of Soylent Green. So let's talk a little bit about, we're talking about masculinity. Let's keep going with intersectionality with the representation of racial equality simultaneously represented with feminist regression, right? That women are furniture. So the word furniture refers to beautiful women who essentially come with a house, right? So in a world where women don't have power, they are trapped in a apartment as essentially prostitutes forever, right? Like a piece of furniture, and that's pretty scary. <laughs> but the two main characters of other authority, both the law and uh, religious authority, are played by people of color and mm-hmm. carry tremendous weight. So talk to me about uh, how those things hit you. Um, well, I, I do, uh, you know, um, the, the Brock Adams character, the, who's uh, the lieutenant, Yes. Uh, Heston's lieutenant of the police department. His boss. Yes. Um, and I think he was quite popular in the 70s and into the 80s. I think he later on did some soap operas and <laughs> television. But um, he is the sort of, um, I guess all of them are slightly corrupt cops. Oh, yeah. One Casually corrupt. <laughs> yeah, it's a, sort of like, the, but that was, a, I think, a bigger thing in a sort of Serpico era, you know, the the French Connection, Dirty mm-hmm. Cop era of mm-hmm. the 60, late 60s, early 70s. And um, so he's there. And then also the priest um, at the, I think, the Catholic Church. The priest is played by Lincoln Kilpatrick. Yes. yes. Who I think <laughs> gets off maybe the best acted you know, uh brief role in this. Yeah, he, he has, is what, stunning. 45 seconds maybe on screen, and he is one of the most memorable. He's so exhausted because you realize that 
the secret was revealed to him. Yeah. And he has to, as a priest, yes, as a priest, you're revealing your sins, right? To a, But this man reveals a sin that is so monumental that you can see it has corrupted him and his soul. That he's yeah. just broken. The corporate leader, yes, um, had, has, had taken his um, mistress, also known as furniture, mm-hmm. uh, to church with him often and participate in confession, confess <laughs> to him and the burden of this confession. It makes you, it's one of the, I think, few popular films I think I can think of where, um, aside from one of my favorite movies of all time, On the Waterfront, oh, yes. where so uh, uh, the priest is a powerful but good character, it has the weight of being a moral agent in an immoral world. Yes. And uh, so he's really powerful in this. And the burdens of being a servant leader, a minister <laughs> in a chaotic world, um, you're almost relieved when he's assassinated. Yeah. I mean, the look on his when he's assassinated by the corporate henchman. Uh, oh, you mean Simonson in the beginning, right? Um, no, I the mean, priest is assassinated. Yes, as well. in the confession yeah. booth. Yeah, that so it is. That is really interesting too, because the idea of religion as it's represented is almost an afterthought. But the fact that Simonson in the beginning goes to church is the giveaway that gets him essentially killed, right? Yes. Because in this world, you have to give up your belief yeah. in order to survive. Yeah. So people clinging on to the power of belief are martyred, essentially. Yeah. The, the 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 strong men in this clearly have to give up their sense of morality uh, in order to survive in the system, to be a part of Soylent. Um, is I think the governor, who was, I guess, his law partner at one point in the background of this, mm-hmm. um, is the first hint of that. He's ordering the case closed and about, his, about uh, the assassination of uh, um, a character played by Joseph Cotton mm-hmm. uh, as, as one of the heads of Soylent. Um, but um, uh, he, I guess the hint that he has to go is that he goes to church. Yeah, it's, it's um, all of these are, are subtle, but in a film that is well done, this is something I'm trying to figure out. Are they, what are the takeaways here, right? We're analyzing this film. The takeaway is that every, every scene, every word, every prop, every decision is meant to reinforce this theme, right? So all of these things are subtle but they are also very powerful. So something I also want to talk about um, is setting. We'll get to that in just a moment. You're listening to They Came From Outer Space here on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I'm Cameron Kitt here with Steve Taylor. We're talking about Soylent Green, and I want to talk about setting. They use some amazing sets in this film. Um, one of the ones that stands out to me in terms of subtle importance of, of design is when he is on his way to the factory. Yes. When we get to the factory, we see two or three smokestacks, which to me was to, meant to be a subconscious representation of the Holocaust, uh-huh. right? Smokes burning, burning human bodies, right? This like u- ultimate fear. Um, and I think just the choice of setting was so fantastic throughout the film that it was both futuristic but shabby. Um, and I know you recently worked with Amelia, so either talking about that or other pieces you've worked, how, how have you seen the importance of setting influence the work of film that you've either worked on or participated in? Well, I think, um, you know, I think 
people certainly scout out these and look for the right setting. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to, uh, and what you see here is a creation of an atmosphere. Mm. Um, and what's amazing to me that so much of it's done with um, the lighting mm. and how dark or bright something is. Um, particularly, say, um, this church, where you would think there would be much, much more light. Uh, the darkness hangs there, the mm -hmm. human misery mm -hmm. that's reflected. And then in a confession booth, mm -hmm. it's really, really amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and then, fun, oddly, the brightness is where I think most people of, with the modern sensibilities, particularly about the role of women, would see light. And it, it's something where they would catch them and say, this is really bad with the with the, where the where the furniture or the women, the beautiful mm -hmm. young women live, who come with the apartments of the wealthy men or mm -hmm. the condos of the wealthy men. It's the only bright light there is, aside from maybe the police station. Yeah, the only well lit spaces are the <laughs> artificial spaces. Where I love when we're talking about the fact that um, Thorne's character and and his uh, and Captain are both casually corrupt. Is that he walks into the house, says Simonson, murder, dispose, and then just gets a pillowcase and starts grabbing stuff from around the rich man's house. It's so good. It, it is the it is it is the best. It's, um. it's great. He's like, you, you have some alcohol, get it. Let's get the let's get the booze out. Because I found myself rooting for him. Yeah. If this is that world, get it while yeah. you can. Um, but that's interesting that those are the spaces that are the most well lit and. I think the choice of actresses was really great because these women are, you know, even though the scene, the scene that I hate the most is where that the man who runs the apartment with the red coat comes in and beats up all five women. I think it's Charlie, yeah. How can five women not take this little teeny guy, right? They're all just standing around waiting to get slapped. That was like so uh, infuriating to me, right? That the women are so disenfranchised that they just can't even think to stand up and fight back for themselves. Well, I think it's the larger, as you mentioned, disenfranchisement is that in a dystopian world, I, I am at, you know, I'm one of the things that brought me out my interest in politics was my love of history. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I think a little bit differently than I think many people about history is that most of human history is very dark. It is, it, it's only maybe the last 200, 250 years where there's some light. <laughs> it's maybe the last 60, 70 where that light spreads around the world from the West. And particularly anything about, say, the equal status of women. And um, um, I think the fear for them, the reason they don't fight back, is that they would be cast out back into this mm. world where everyone else is eating solvent green mm -hmm. or hoping to get solvent green because that's the primo solvent. Soylent green <laughs> Soylent is the green. new one. Yeah, that's the, that's the good yellow, stuff. You don't want yellow, you don't want blue. That's an interesting point. And it's also one of my favorite topics too, which is it's important to recognize that women's rights, the rights of, of queer people, the rights of people of color, the rights, rights of disabled people are very recent developments in history. For most of our 30,000 years of socially developed history, it's been one way. In most societies, let's say, you know, there have still been some matriarchal societies and areas, but those get erased by history, um, which is that's important to 
be recognizing that it could be taken back away, right? That's another area where I see this being relevant is the rolling back of rights that's happening or being attempted to happen right now. And, and you know, and I think too, I think one of the brilliant things about this film is that we imagine this, the rollback of, of, of rights as being something political. I think one of the things the film helps us realize here is much of it could be sort of the collapse of the general economy. Economic, yeah. Ooh, I just got shivers. <laughs> and and that what affords us the opportunity? Uh, maybe to go Milton Friedman on us for a second here. The opportunity to indulge in politics and in art and things like this is to have a functioning economy that's doing the basics underneath of us. And that um, and that used to be well understood, I think, in the in more intellectual circles, that you had to have the basics fulfilled. And I think that's sometimes lost in that now that we have the basics at the ready, we think the extra, the political equality, the social equality, uh, well, we're being denied that when maybe that comes afterwards in both capitalist thought and in Marxist thought. Um, and we don't realize that without that underpinning, those things are going to crumble. Well, I would I would argue that economic e- economic systems like capitalism are vehemently opposed to equality, despite the fact that the health of the community economically, if we're just looking at a community or a series of communities, is has been proven time and time again to be stronger when equality is present across the community. Right when women have equal access to start businesses, when people of color have equal access to run businesses, the communities are stronger economically. Yeah. So it's inherently a way to keep that going. I mean, if I may indulge myself and do my own pitch, my friend Andy Arches, who is also a WIR member, we're working on a documentary called Sister Radio about a program starting in Segu, Mali, which is our sister city in Richmond, about getting women on the air. Part of the reason that everyone is interested and excited about that is because they expect the programs of women talking on the air to other women to be economic tips. As I asked Mustaf, who runs the, the radio station, what do you think some of the shows would be about? And he said, how to farm, how to sell your goods, yes, how yes, to keep track yes. of money, basic yeah. things, you know, economic uh, skills. And I, that essentially they're trying to reestablish that and make the economy stronger. Well, I th- and I, th- I think at the, at the core of what you're saying is correct. It's that becoming productive in the economy leads to the political equalization. Hmm. Um, that once people are able to contribute and are free to participate, it, it, following what should be their rights, you know, the difference between being, a, say, a, the, the, what is the, one of the major differences, things that we forget now, the, the slave can't participate in the economy. He can't con- uh, contract. They can't seek credit. You can't make a contract with a person, well, a person who's not a person, not who's a legal property. person. Right. And and I think for both, say, a, something of a slave system or a system where um, women are less equal in, a, in the political economy is that they're not competent legally to contract. And that's the, one of the big differences. And I think one of the things this film shows is as these systems collapse, the, the economy then the, the rights are Kelly. The rights <laughs> roll back. Yeah. It's so true that I, you made a really great point earlier, but that women were not given the right to vote until after World War One, when they proved economic viability by 
taking the first step towards replacing young men in the workplace. And it was it was Wilson who said, now that we've seen women work so hard, we shouldn't deny them the same rights. Mm-hmm. It's only once you prove yourself as valuable to society that, but you, you mentioned before that part of the reason why this is the future is because when we're reverting back, it's the strong men and the organizers who run things, yeah. right? So throughout history, how else has that come up? You know, how well, do if we it's see organized that? violence. I mean, mm-hmm. um, what government, is, governments tip to hold the monopoly on violence. And the powerful people in government, the most powerful men, say, take them as barons, lords, who provide troops to kings and, and the nation states, the early nation states, they were most capable of organizing armies, mm-hmm. funding armies, equipping armies, and they would be the powerful folks. And uh, you see this in, in Soylent uh, in that um, the uh, the head of the corporation uh, played by Cotton, the most powerful, lives in the most luxurious circumstances. Right. But then as you go down a little further, his bodyguard also has a pretty pretty sweet little gig. And he also has a mistress mm-hmm. who is kept in silks, Things mm-hmm. that he can acquire, given the incredibly priced uh, $150, I think, uh, $150 strawberries. For, yeah, the, the, oh, the visual of strawberry jam. So he, see, he the giveaway that Charlton Heston sees that is kind of part of the trail, right? He's a detective as he sees a, a spoon with strawberry jam on it and takes it. Yeah. And, it, of course, strawberry jam similar to blood, yeah. right? But, <laughs> but that's the symbol of, of true wealth is yeah. strawberry, is smuckers, you know, a jar of smuckers. <laughs> That's a giveaway, but yeah, that like that's he's like hmm, bodyguard shouldn't be living this well. Yeah, and I love the again the equality of race is that he didn't think twice when she you know the the piece of furniture they have this like semi sexual interaction where she goes I would you like to stay a little longer he goes I'd love to but I don't have time gotta go like yeah. this idea of <laughs> that it's just expected of course it is Charlton Heston yeah. so I understand what she's saying <laughs> but the I love that what you just said which is that. It, it, the government has the monopoly on violence, and throughout history, it's whoever has the ability to um, organize, but also has the most flexibility. So I was reading a book called Homo Deus, where he talked about, you know, human beings have arisen to such masterful power over the earth because we are the only species that has both the ability to cooperate, but cooperate flexibly in large numbers with mm-hmm. people who are not part of our core family. And what happened after the Arab Spring was that people came together to overthrow the government, but there was a vacuum of power, and the only ones who had the organization and flexible cooperation in place was the Muslim Brotherhood and the army, both of whom took turns taking over afterwards, (laughs) right? So who has the power in this? It's the people who make the food. So they're the real ones running it, right? And and I think sometimes in political science, we've forgotten the incredible um, necessity of being able to organize violence, the professionalization of the soldier class Mm. in the the great nation states, and in the free nation states. And in the free nation states, professionalizations of the soldier's class has meant they are out of politics and they take orders from civilians who are elected um, by, by the public. And, and, and that's what has sort of kept that force at bay. But if we were in a sort of dystopian world, I mean, may, imagine some part of a, a town in America now that's probably where, say, gangs have tremendous influence. Or imagine right. the narco states but south of our border um, where strong men control violence and they organize it into essentially armies. And um, they're rapacious on their publics. Um, and, and that's what you'll have. It's simply interesting. Like the, the anthro, uh, what would you call that? 
sociology of human behavior is such that given a vacuum of power, who is the most organized? Inherently, the military, because yeah. organization is a necessity, right? Ranks clearly defined. Power and, structure clearly defined. And what civilization has taught us in our history, a history of militaries, is organized violence always trumps disorganized violence. It, it's much, much more powerful. And uh, what that is what a soldier of any sort um, learns that most people, like you know, picking a just the strongest guy in the neighborhood, the strongest guy in the neighborhood can never beat 15, 20 guys organized. Who are, who are weaklings. So do, if, if you're listening out there, people, it's time to organize. <laughs> it's time to organize. Because I think if we're talking about military, right, the proto-military, we films love to follow police officers, but they particularly love to follow detectives because they have just enough of police background to have authority, but they're just enough of a rogue to not fully represent the police structure, which a lot of people tend to have a lot of animosity towards, mm -hmm. right? So he's still technically part of a organized form of violence. He's get, yeah. he has the sanction to kill and the sanction to decide what life is worthwhile, right? He just, he, he stamps Simonson says dispose with his own prejudice, right? So, <laughs> but, but yet we follow him because he has the moral, he, he has to have this moral transformation, yeah. right? So we see him transform from the beginning to this very blase, I don't care about anyone else to saying I love you to Saul, mm -hmm. right? Once he realizes what's at stake to showing emotion, to showing what he really cares about. I've been trying to study transformation. What do you think is, is am I on the right track there? Is, he, is that the kind of core story of his transformation or is there something else? Um, I think, I'm, yeah. I, I, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we only have a few more minutes before we can wrap up, but we're talking about Charlton Heston who I think is the only person on earth who could have delivered that line with the way he did, the very last line of the film or second to last line. I mean, I don't even know what, it's almost, it's like high pitched and disgusted, yeah. but yeah. it's so well done. We're talking about Soylent Green. This is, they came from outer space here on WIR. I'm here with Steve Taylor. So what would you say, Steve, is, is one of the takeaways for you that we haven't talked about of why somebody listening to this right now should go find Soylent Green and watch it? You alluded to something about the the place of women in this. Um, mm -hmm. the, the standout place is the the younger, beautiful women who essentially are in concubine relationships yep. with powerful, more powerful men mm -hmm. for their own safety, mm -hmm. for their for their ability to supposedly right for their yeah. own safety. Yeah. <laughs> someone else decides what's safe for them. <laughs> now, but I think um, and, and, you know, many people who reviewed it note this, mm -hmm. um, but they will miss. The older, more powerful women who are in the knowledge group in the exchange, and those sort of learned priestess um, uh, women uh, are there in a very powerful way. They're the ones who re help reveal to Saul, yes. who is um, the knowledge guy. He's sort of a, a lesser priest. He knows the old world, the beautiful old world, but he can't put his finger on it without this consultation wow. at the exchange. So I, I think um, there are two different places in this of, of, of comments where women are commented on in, in, in this society. Uh, well, I should say maybe even three. Um, there's the women who are the furniture, mm -hmm. the women who, who are dominant at the exchange, where the knowledge is kept. There's this secret reference room of books mm -hmm. and reading where they're all walled off with mm -hmm. <laughs> studying. Mm -hmm. 
And then in that marketplace, mm. there is that great bit where I, I, I have to go back and look here because I think on the when the when the when that woman is shorted. Yes. At the exchange. And did she say I only got a quarter of a kilo? Yes. Quarter Something of a kilo? like that. Yeah, it's, it's either <laughs> half a kilo or a quarter, and she, she's shaking her plastic bag in anger. Yeah. I'm sitting there like, is that a, a sort of mix of the measuring systems? Yeah, I was like, here's <laughs> just a quarter of a kilo. Sounds like drug references to me. <laughs> but, you know, you have these places where the, the, the women demonstrate the dystopia, mm. you know, um, the the sexual concubinage, the shortage of food where, on the market day where people have to feed their families, and then this connection to the old world and to knowledge, the mm-hmm. repository of, 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 of human history, the way it was before this disaster. And I, I would dare say, I mean, you, I've heard it said by biologists, lectures that human beings are the only creatures that have grandparents and um whoa <laughs> and, and 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 that it's you know raising uh children is so intensive um the passing of knowledge the, the, that that part is, is mm-hmm. important so these women who almost most of the criticism that I've read about the film, and by criticism I mean reviews and things like that, not just people who don't like the film, but they're almost ignored. Mm. These the, the powerful older women who are not, say, sex objects, yes, not childbearing. Well, that hasn't changed at all, Steve. <laughs> but, <laughs> they're, but, they're, but they are the ones who re- really put their finger on this, that it is... Humans and plankton isn't out there. Available. Yeah, the keepers of the knowledge. I think that that's a beautiful way to wrap this up. That if you want to be adequately terrified and spurred to action, watch this film, yeah. Soylent Green, 1972, Richard Fleischer. And I just want to say well, thank you so much, Steve. What yeah, were you going to well, say? Thank you. I was like, Heston has at least three or four of these. That in his in your Omega Man. Oh, sci-fi films that we. I know you got to leave them open gra- for others. <laughs> yeah, so I can't wait to dig into of... it because I always have thought of him as Moses yeah. and nothing else. And so to see him in this role was masterful. And I hope you'll enjoy it and watch it. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the seventh episode of They Came from Outer Space here on WIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. You can find out more online at WIR.org or search for me on Mixcloud. And I'll see you next time. You darn dirty ape. 